For our kids' sermon this morning, I'm going to need a uh, couple of volunteers to come up here and stand. One is going to be Mr. Dan Ware, and the second is going to be Mr. Daniel Miller. And it's purely coincidental that I picked the other two Dans at BC. It just kind of worked out this way. What? Oh, yeah, the poster is at the Campbells. Um, so, kids, I have a question for you this morning that I need your help with. I need you to help me compare and contrast uh, these two Dans, or Dan and Daniel. So that means I need you to tell me first, what is similar about them this morning? What do they have in common? What's the same? Their name is the same. What else? What do you got, Dinah? Nothing? Bye-bye. What about you? Zeke, what do you got? They are the same. They're both Dan's. What do you guys got? Reese boys. They both have beards. Yeah. Okay, which one? Let's, now let's talk about some differences. Whose beard is better? What do you think, Noah? Dan's. All right. Okay, what do you think, Solomon? They both have a beard. Right, names, facial hair. What about you, Jonathan? They're both boys. That's, that's great. That's a good one. One's shorter and one's longer. That's right. What about you, Landon? What? Oh, yeah. Dan is closing himself off to all of you with his posture. Okay, hey, here's, now, now we're going to make it a little more difficult. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Now we're going to make it a little more difficult. I want to tell you one thing that I know that's different about them. This Dan is a wonderful Believer's Church member and deacon. But this Dan is an elder. That means he's one of the pastors of our church. So the question I have for you kids is, what is it that makes this Dan able to be a pastor and this Dan... Just a normal guy. <laughs> What's different? <Well. laughs> the ability to wear plaid. That, that might be it. What do you think, Noah? I have one difference. One of them is a dork, the other one is not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> what do you think, Joshua? One has glasses, one doesn't. So Daniel gets to be a pastor because he doesn't have glasses. Okay, how about uh, some of the grown-ups, some parents? Can you guys help us out? Why does one Daniel get to be a pastor and the other Dan not get to be a pastor at BC? We're all called to different things. What did you say? He aspired to the task of an elder. And so we as a church said, hey, we think the Holy Spirit has given Daniel to us as one of our pastors, and so we're going to put him in this position. So, uh, in some ways, there's something different about them that makes Daniel a pastor and doesn't make Dan a pastor, but at the same time, uh, they're both just guys, right? They're both ordinary people, and one of them just has the title of pastor, and one of them doesn't. Okay, now we're going to go one step further. What is different between these two guys and Jesus. 
What do you think? Way in the back. They're not perfect. As you can tell by their beards. What about you, Caleb? But how does that compare to Jesus? Yeah, go ahead. Jesus knows everything. Does Dan know everything? What about Daniel? Okay. So these, these guys are just normal guys, but Jesus, who is he? Is he a normal guy? Who's he? God. That's exactly right. You've already said he's perfect. You said he knows everything. Uh, what about, uh, what, what has Jesus done for us? He died and then whoop, which means rose again from the grave. So he saved us from our sins. Did these guys do anything to save me or you from our sins? No. Okay, the reason why, you guys can go ahead and sit down. Thank you very much. Yeah. The reason why this matters today is because what we're going to be talking about in the book of Hebrews is this position in uh, the Old Testament religion of the high priest. And this was a guy who uh, kind of led the people in worship. He offered sacrifices for sins. Uh, but what the author of Hebrews is going to tell us is that he's just a normal guy. But Jesus, who's our high priest because of who he is and what he's done for us, is someone who's uh, very different from a normal guy. He is a human being who's been made like us, but he's perfect. Uh, he's God's son who died to save us from our sins. And so we're going to see in our passage that even though Jesus is a high priest, like the Old Testament priests were high priests, he is different and he is a better high priest who can save us from our sins. So uh, if you guys would, uh, grown-ups and kids, if you have Bibles, go ahead and open to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's some underneath the chairs. And I have no idea what page number it's on because I didn't write it down. 1003. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that no matter how often or how many times in our lives we come to your word, we always are capable of learning more about who you are and what you've done for us. And at the same time, we learn more about who we are as your people and what you expect from us. God, we pray that today as we look at this passage, which 
tells us about the the high priests of old and about who your son is as our high priest, uh, that we would begin to learn more about just the gloriousness of the gospel. That your son doesn't just uh, save us from our sins, though uh, mercifully and thankfully he does, but he also continues to be our mediator with you so that we can, like we saw last week, come boldly before your throne with confidence. We pray that you would just continue to use our time together this morning to increase our affection for you and our faith in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, last week we saw in the book of Hebrews... uh, the author giving us two commands. And we talked uh, about those commands in the context of a sandwich, if you remember that illustration. And what I said was that those commands, the one is let us hold fast our confession. The second was let us draw near the throne of grace with confidence. And those two things are connected. We hold fast our confession of Christ by continuing to, throughout our lifetime, draw near His throne with confidence so that we can receive grace and mercy from Him. So the thing that kind of tied those commands together and gave the motivation for them was what the author told us at the end of verse or the beginning of verse 14 and the, the verse 15. He told us that Jesus is our great high priest. And I said that next week we're going to talk more about what it means that Jesus is our high priest. And now that's this week. That's what we see in these verses. In chapter 5, the author of Hebrews turns to start talking about how Jesus is our high priest. And he's going to do this all the way through chapter 10. So we're going to hear this again and again and again as the author of Hebrews is comparing Jesus to the kind of entire Old Testament system of religion. He's going to be telling us that Jesus is better, he's greater, he's he's more significant of a salvation than what they had under the Old Covenant. So we're going to see in our passage this morning just kind of a glimpse into that that he's going to keep uh, going throughout the rest of chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. So, one thing I want to point out to you before we get into this passage is the structure of the passage. I think we should have this on a slide after after all the verses. And you know me, I don't normally talk about boring structure stuff. But we're going to talk about it because today it actually helps us understand the passage. He uses a very specific kind of... uh, writing style to teach us something important. And so what this structure is called, it's called a chiasm. You know, if you want to impress your friends at parties, that means that it's like an X because it starts out and then it makes progression and it makes progression and then it comes back contrasting one person with someone else. So the very beginning tells us about the old office of high priest. This is how the high priests were in the Old Testament. Then at the very end, he's going to tell us about Jesus as our high priest. The second thing he's going to do is he's going to tell us that the high priest in the Old Testament, he identified with the people because he himself was a person. And the second to last thing he's going to tell us in verses 7 and 8 is that Jesus also, like them, identifies with the people. And the third thing he's going to tell us is how the high priest was appointed. And then the very next thing is he's going to go to Jesus and tell us how Jesus was appointed as high priest. And so as we walk through the passage, we're going to see this. He's comparing Jesus as high priest to the Old Testament high priest. And obviously Jesus is going to come out on top of that comparison because he is a better and greater high priest. So let's look at verse 1 to begin. He says, 
Every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. In the Old Testament, this is what high priests did. They acted as a mediator between the rest of the people and God. They offered sacrifices both for worship and offer, and also sacrifices for sin to God. They were the mediator between the people and between God. So if you wanted to, when you get home today, you could read Exodus 28 and 29. You could see when the office of high priest is created. It tells us all about this really fancy outfit that Aaron wore. And it takes two chapters to talk about how he became a high priest. Uh, you could also read the beginning of the book of Leviticus, and it will tell you offering after offering after offering the things these high priests did in the temple in worship to God and to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. This is what the high priest did. They offered sacrifices. They offered worship to God as a mediator between the people and God. Verses 2 and 3 tell us who this high priest was on the inside, how he identifies with people. He says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So the very first thing we see is he is a typical human being. He's not anyone special. He himself has weakness. And because of this, the author of Hebrews tells us that he can deal gently with the ignorant, those who don't know what they're doing, and the wayward, those who do know what they're doing but don't care. And I think here, we should see some application in this for us. The high priest, even though you know he's a fallen, broken human being under the Old Testament system of religion, even he can deal gently with those who either don't care what they're doing or don't know that what they're doing is wrong. And so, in our own lives, if we see that we struggle with being gentle with people who are ignorant or wayward or post crazy things on social media, we know maybe I don't know my own weakness as well as I should. Because if we're familiar with our own weakness, then we will be more likely to deal gently with the weaknesses of others. So if you're someone who isn't gentle, or if the people that are in your life around you are telling you that you're not gently gentle or gently, you should become more and more familiar with your own weakness. I think in marriage especially, one of the things we see is that very quickly we become experts in our spouse's weaknesses. Like, I could tell you all about Jen. And in some ways, I know her weaknesses better than I know my own. But I need to become an expert in my weaknesses so that I'm able to deal gently with others and their weakness. I think that's one thing... We're not called to be like the high priests. We're called to be like Christ. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn from them. So that's one thing I think we see here in them that we can learn. In verse 3, we see something else. It says, because of this, because of the high priest's weakness, he's obligated, he's required, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. He had to offer a sacrifice for himself before he could even begin to offer a sacrifice for someone else. I think this is very similar to what we see Jesus talking about in the Gospels. Right, when he talks about hypocrisy and he says that we need to take the plank out of our own eye before we start dealing with the speck in someone else's eye. We need to deal with our own sin first before we begin to start trying to deal with someone else's sin. And here's another place I think we can learn from the practice of the high priest. Right, We don't have to offer sacrifice for our sins, correct? correct. Yes. Why not? Come on, Kyle. Nobody else is going to answer. 
Because Jesus, and we're going to see this again and again in the book of Hebrews, he offered sacrifice for sins once and for all. So we don't need to offer sacrifice for our sins before we offer sacrifice for someone else's sins. But one thing we probably do need to do is we need to make sure that we've applied Jesus' sacrifice to us before we begin to try to apply it to other people. We need to make sure that we have repented and we've confessed of the sins that we know in our lives before we start to try to point them out in other people's lives. This is one way we can learn from the high priests and what they did. So the high priest is somebody who's a mediator between God and man. He offers sacrifices for sin. He offers worship to God. Uh, he's beset with weakness because he's just a typical human being. Because of that, he can identify with the people. In verses, uh, verse 4, we see uh, how the high priest was appointed. This is how he gets the gig of high priest. It says, no one takes the honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. That's what happens in Exodus 28 and 29 when the high priest begins. God calls Aaron to be a high priest. And he's saying that's the way it's always been. That's the way it should be. And the reason why this is really important for the, authors, the, the author of Hebrews as he's writing to his audience is because that's not the way it worked in their day. In their day, the high priest was chosen by either Herod or the Romans. So a pagan government official chose the high priest. He said, this is the one who should be the high priest. So it was a corrupt system. And so here he's writing them, telling them, this is the way it should be. The high priest should be somebody that's appointed by God, not someone who's been set up by a pagan king. And this is why Jesus is a better high priest. Because as we see in the Gospels, he wasn't supported. He wasn't chosen by the pagan government. He was killed by them. He's a better high priest because of what the author of Hebrews tells us next about how Jesus was appointed. Verses 5 and 6. He says, So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here, the author of Hebrews, to show us that Jesus is the true high priest. He's not one who's been appointed by a pagan king. He's one who's been appointed by God. He quotes two places from the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 2 and he quotes Psalm 110. He's already quoted both of these Psalms in the book of Hebrews and he's going to do it again. And so first he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So let's go flip over to Psalm 2 and we're going to read it. I don't hear you flipping. All right, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's his anointed king saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's in Jerusalem. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In this psalm, David's saying, there's all these kings who are plotting against me and plotting against the Lord, but the Lord has made me king. He's put me in Jerusalem and I'm his king. I'm on his hill and I'm like a son to him. God has said to me, I'm like his son. That's what David's saying. What David doesn't know 
or may not know as well as we do now, is that he's looking forward to a time when uh, God's king will be God's son. Not like a son, but actually his son. And so David is, is talking about this king that he is and that the Messiah will be. So the question for us this morning is, in Psalm 2, where does it talk about priests? Because that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. The author of Hebrews is saying, this is how we know Jesus was appointed by God as a high priest. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. So what does Psalm 2 tell us about priests? This is kind of a trick question. Here's an easy one. Does it use the word priest? No. Psalm 2 doesn't say anything about priests. So what is the author trying to tell us? Let's go look at Psalm 110 because that's what he quotes next. This will be a shorter flip. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So both of these psalms deal with some, some victory for the king and judgment for the nations. But Psalm 110 begins to talk about the fact that this king, that this psalm is about, is also going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a very mysterious character in Scripture. He shows up in Genesis 14, in Psalm 110, and then in the book of Hebrews. And that's it. In Genesis 14, what's going on is Abram has just won a battle with some other kings. And this guy, Melchizedek, walks into the scene and he uh, gives Abraham and these other victorious kings some bread and some wine and then he blesses Abraham. And Abraham responds by giving this priest, this king priest, Melchizedek, a tenth of all his plunder from battle. And then Melchizedek disappears. And doesn't show up again in the storyline of Scripture until Psalm 110 when David writes this psalm that we just read. And then he disappears. And he doesn't show up again until the author of Hebrews picks up Psalm 110, which we've just read and quotes it and applies it to Jesus. Uh, and then he's going to do it again in chapters 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. And so the question is, what in the world is the author of Hebrews trying to tell us about Jesus, our high priest, and how he's been appointed by combining Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 in this way? This is my answer. Psalm 2 is telling us about Jesus as king. It's telling us that Jesus is a different kind of king. He's not a king like David. He's not a king like these nations that plot against God. He is a king who's not like a son to God, but one who is God's son. He's the king that's been prophesied about in the Old Testament who's going to reign on the throne of David forever. So Jesus is a different kind of king. Psalm 110 is about the fact that Jesus is a different kind of king because he's also a different kind of priest. Right? He's not a priest like the Old Testament high priests who were all descendants of Aaron and the Levites. Jesus is a descendant of Judah. He's a priest who's of this 
kind of different kind of priest, this different order, this order of Melchizedek, because he's one who's not just a priest, who's not just a king, but who's a king and a priest at the same time. We're going to talk more about that when we get to chapter 7, but for now, what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus is different because, number one, he hasn't been appointed by the pagan kings. He hasn't taken this position for himself. It's been given to him by his father because he is God's son who is a different kind of king and a different kind of priest. That's what he's talking about. That's how Jesus was appointed. So he was appointed differently from both the high priests in this time period and differently from the high priests in the Old Testament. And now I can't find the book of Hebrews. All right, here we go. So, this is how Jesus was appointed. We see the fact that he can identify with the people in verses 7. So he's appointed in a different way than them. He also identifies with the people in a different way in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, his time on the earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So we see in these verses that Jesus, like the high priest in the Old Testament, he can identify with the people because he's experienced life as a human being. The first thing he tells us is that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. What, what event in Jesus' life does that remind you of? Jesus offering prayers to God with kind of loud cries and tears so that he might be saved from death. Gethsemane, right? When he's in the garden and he's praying, when he knows the very next thing that's going to happen in his life is he's going to be betrayed and he's going to be executed. He's praying to his father. He's crying out. He's saying, let this cup pass from me if possible. We know that ultimately that's not what happens. There isn't another way for him to redeem us. And so he goes to the cross joyfully and obediently. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that that event wasn't just one night for him. It happened throughout the course of his life. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers like that. And the reason why is because he was beset with human weakness. We talked about this last week. He was made weak like us in every respect. He experienced temptation just like we do in every respect. In even greater ways because he was without sin. He never gave in. And so he experienced more and more and more and more and more of temptation than we ever will. And because of that, he needed to offer up prayers and supplications throughout his life so that he might be saved from death. And the author of Hebrews tells us that he was heard because of his reverence. And I think the most natural thing for us to think here when we read that is to think, I need to be more reverent when I pray. Jesus was heard because of his reverence, so maybe if I can pray more reverently, then I too will be heard. But I don't think that's what we should take away from this. I do think we can be irreverent when we pray. And if we do that, we may or may not be heard, or may not be heard how we would like to be heard. But I think here that the reality of reverence, of of knowing who God is and what he's done for us and having that kind of awe for who he is and what he's done. More than affecting the way we pray, I think that it affects that we pray. Right? Jesus was heard because he prayed 
a lot. He was heard because he knew the kind of relationship that he had with his father and he participated in it. He took advantage of it. He sought the Lord where he could be found, which was in relationship with him. And so I think more than us thinking that we need to be, you know, act a certain way when we pray so that we may be heard, I think we just need to recognize that because of what Jesus has done for us, as we saw last week, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And so more than saying, like, we need to pray a specific way, we should see in this, we need to pray. And often, because we can come before the throne with confidence, because it's promised in verse 16 of the chapter we covered last week that we will receive grace and mercy in our time of need, we should do it. He was heard because of his reverence, because he came before the Lord and sought him out. He tells us although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. He's going to tell us he was made perfect. This doesn't mean that he was imperfect. It means that he was completed. So he learned obedience through suffering. Quick question before we talk about what this means. Did Jesus disobey? No, right? We know from last week he was without sin. We go to a bunch of other passages in the New Testament and see that. So the fact that he learned obedience does not mean that he was disobedient. So what does it mean? What does it mean that he learned obedience through what he suffered? I think that what it means is that he learned what it was like to obey his father as a human being. He experienced life like we do. And what it was like to obey his father in the midst of it. He learned what it was like to obey his father as an infant, as a toddler, as a you know kindergartner, although they probably didn't have kindergarten in ancient Israel. He learned what it was like to obey him as a child, as a young man, as an adolescent, as a, you know, somebody who just turned 21. He knew what it was like to obey his father in all these different circumstances. He experienced uh, weakness. He experienced people sinning against him. He experienced tiredness, hunger, you know, sorrow. He experienced human life and he obeyed in the midst of it. And I think that as he suffered through life as a human being in this broken world, he learned what it was like to obey his father perfectly. That's what the author is talking about. So I think what this means for us, two things we can take away from this, from what the author tells us about Jesus. He learned obedience through what he suffered, although he was a son. Is that we should have zero confidence that we will avoid suffering in this life. Jesus was obedient perfectly, and he suffered. So we know that our obedience does not mean we will not suffer. Jesus was a son. He was the perfect son of God. He experienced suffering. So just because we are sons and daughters of God by virtue of what Christ has done for us on the cross, that does not mean that we should have any confidence that we avoid suffering. So because Jesus, although he was a son, learned obedience through suffering, we should recognize that suffering is going to be part of life in this broken world. And because of who he is in our time of need, we can draw near his throne for grace and mercy and find help. It's not going to make suffering any easier, but it might make obedience in the midst of it easier. Because Jesus was made perfect, verses 9 and 10, the author of Hebrews tells us about his priestly office and how it differs from the Old Testament. Because he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
Not only is his priesthood better, but the salvation that he offers is better. Because it's not a temporary salvation from sin, but it's eternal salvation. It's once for all. Because he offers that to all who obey him. What should we think when we see that verse? He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That should set off our we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone radar right there. Where's faith? He says obedience is what saves us. Well, the reality is that in the New Testament, true faith and obedience go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. If you have obedience without faith, you have legalism. If you have faith without obedience, you don't have faith. You have license. You have sin. And that's it. True faith and obedience always go hand in hand. We see this at the end of Hebrews in verse, or in chapter 11, verses uh, 8 through 10. I think we have a slide. There we go. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. And living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So how can we separate faith and obedience in that passage? What Abraham did by faith, what Abraham did in obedience to God. Can we split those two up, put them in two different categories? We can't. It's the same thing. By faith, he obeyed. Everything he did was in obedience and faith to God. In the same way in our own life, we what we do, how we respond to the grace he's shown us is both based on faith and obedience to him. We will not have salvation if we do not obey. I know that that sets off our legalism radar. But true faith is always worked out in obedience. And if we don't have obedience, we should not be confident that we have faith. They always go hand in hand in the New Testament, and that's only going to get stronger as we go through Hebrews. So Jesus is the source of salvation once and for all to those who obey him by faith. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but that faith produces obedience. So Jesus, in this passage, what we see is that he's a better high priest who offers a better salvation. And in every category, his priesthood is more significant than theirs. And because of that, what we're going to see in the coming chapters of Hebrews is that the entire Old Testament system of religion is done away with. It's invalid. It doesn't matter anymore. What matters is salvation in Christ. And so, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would just encourage you to think about the fact that Jesus, as our high priest, is your mediator with God. Regardless of where you're at this morning, whether you're someone who's trusted in Christ your entire life, or whether you're someone who's never trusted in Christ, recognize that the only person we have to stand between us and a holy God is His Son, who is our high priest. And he has offered sacrifice for our sins once and for all so that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what our past is like, we can have forgiveness for our sins. His throne can be a throne of grace for us. And so I would encourage you to prepare your heart to take the Lord's Supper, to celebrate his death that saves you from your sins by your faith in him. If you're somebody that's new to BC that's never been here before, we're a church that does the Lord's Supper every single week. Now, that might be weird or different to you, but the reason why we do that is because 
Scripture tells us that the Lord's Supper reminds us of Jesus' death on our behalf. And we're a church that believes we need that reminder all the time. We need to be continually reminded that Christ has died for us and saved us from our sins. Because that tells us that we're imperfect and in need of His forgiveness. And it tells us that it's happened and we don't need to work for it on our own. We're saved by grace. Um, And so what we do is every Sunday we take some time before the Lord's Supper to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper rightly. And then we would invite you to come and do that with us. You don't need to be a member of this church, uh, but we would ask that this be something that only people who have trusted in Christ participate in. It's something that represents what He's done for us. And so if He hasn't done that for you, it's not something you should want to participate in. It's just a tiny cracker and a tiny cup of juice, so it's not really that great to go through the line anyway if it doesn't mean something for you. So I will pray. Uh, someone's going to come play some music quietly in the background as you take that time to worship God in these moments with us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are our mediator. That you have once and for all offered sacrifice for our sins. And we can have confidence that our salvation is real and that it is eternal. God, I pray now that you would just help us, both as individuals as a church, to prepare our hearts to celebrate your death. Uh, that we would begin to think about what it means that you're our mediator. Uh, and that we would confess sin and repent of it. And worship you rightly for who you are and what you've done for us. Pray that you would send your spirit to help us to celebrate your death well as a church this morning.